0: Hi, I'm Rick Lambert. Welcome to this marketing show. You know, Cheryl, I think we're international now because we've got Mitchell Philby here today, all the way from Australia. Um, and who would have thought that we'd have uh, two soccer, uh, two sorry, rugby players on the line here? Mitch, who played pro uh, at the professional level and union level, for any of you that know. Uh, serious rugby. And Cheryl, I know you did your uh, stint there, believe it or not, in addition to figure skating. But I wanted uh, Mitchell to come on and share with our audience his insights. Look, folks, you've got a gentleman on today, our guest. I think is one of the best in the world in terms of understanding how innovation needs to be directly linked to business strategy. He's the founder and principal of a company called First Rock Consulting. And uh, I asked him before we get on, how should I describe you? Um, he didn't use the term consultant, but you know, Mitchell, you know what a consultant is, right?
1: Yeah, I, I heard some nice comments. and I've heard some uh, negative comments, so it's I don't a, know which one you want to go with.
0: We say uh, it's sell to win. We say a consultant's a guy from out of town, right? Because how possibly could someone over here in Canada or United States know what a guy from Australia knows? Sure. But anyway, congratulations, You know, author of a book. I know you're a professional speaker that speaks at tons of conferences. You've got a deep background, 30 plus years in the print area industry where I come from but now you've completely blossomed them out. And I think you're sitting right at the core from what I understand of a lot of tech companies that are trying to bring their product, products, ideas to market. And uh, you know, so many of our clients, Cheryl, are dealing with digital transformation and technology, innovation, all these things. So today, uh, if you would, uh, first of all, thanks very much for coming on, Mitch. I know it's 6.30 a.m. Awesome. your time.
2: Um, Welcome, Mitchell. Thanks, Let's Cheryl.
0: jump into it if we can here. Like, Why do you think innovations become so important you know, when it comes to designing a business strategy?
1: It's a really good question. And uh, because I spend so much time and we've learned a lot of things over the past 20 years or more around about the innovation in the R&D space. And what we're finding is that um, if I took a typical Rogers-Bill curve and looked at what that went through as a cycle, what we're seeing is that where a product usually was bought to market and it had a life uh, in that market for 20 years, and so we in a revenue on a annuity model for that period. We're seeing that products don't, uh, aren't in market for that long anymore. We're seeing it shortening really and concerted right up into five years, uh, even less in some cases. Um, it's like your typical iPhone that you might buy, you change over quite quickly. So we're seeing today that products that you develop um, don't have that bandwidth of being in market. And that's causing businesses from all over the world in different industries some challenges. And that challenge is really how do we actually accelerate our innovation space because we don't have a production market for long, so we actually need more products coming in. And so that dilemma has, is facing every business. So what we're recognising is that um, with that shorter curve that, uh, that you're seeing in bell curves, people are now focusing on innovation. And when I sit with board directors and C-level executives You know, they go, why do we have to spend so much focus on innovation? And I talk about why that bell curve has changed and they recognise that and they go, wow, we we should be focused on innovation. And then they recognise innovation needs to be a practice um, where there is a standard and now there is standards around innovation, but it should be a practice that's fully more aligned to a business strategy so they can execute that. Um, And I guess that's why there's always this kind of theatre around innovation um, but when you understand innovation really well, it's really about supporting the business ongoing sustainability marketplace. If that makes sense,
2: um, Mitchell, I've you know the the pandemic I think has done a lot of things for a lot of businesses. It's not been good for a lot of industries. But one thing I've noticed is a lot of new startups that are happening. They, there's a, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that have seen the pandemic as an opportunity for them to create something for themselves. So I know that any of those individuals watching would wanna know what are the secrets that you've seen behind successful startups?
1: Right, it's a good question, Cheryl. And um, I guess uh, taking on your point around COVID and the challenges, we've also kind of, I know it's probably overused, but we see a bit of a perfect storm in, the area of, I guess, innovation and strategy. We've got a lot of different tech coming out now. We've got uh, IoT, AI, we've got big data, we've got cloud applications, we've got all this tech coming. Robotics. So the way that tech is forming, and um, we've never had such uh, so many options around tech development, and, and it has so many different fields. So we see a lot of entrepreneurship taking advantage of all the different tech. And they can start businesses quite quickly because there's so much opportunity around that tech usage. So that's the one thing that I would say. And the second thing is with COVID, it, as we all know, and we've said, it's public, publicly written everywhere, COVID has accelerated the digital transformation process around businesses. So those two keys have been probably the catalyst for extra, I guess, focus around entrepreneurship in, in the world, and it's not being... You know, it's not it's not somewhere specific that you have to be innovative. You can be innovative anywhere in your local community or big end of town, uh, anywhere in the world. And so what that has happened is um, allowed business to kind of prosper or new startups to prosper around that tech space. And what we've recognised through that process is businesses are looking at going, well, how do, we, how do we set up our business? How do we set up new product lines? And how do we do that on an oily rag? Because unfortunately, funding is... Um, limited in some way to new businesses because obviously that entrepreneur is like a true entrepreneur taking a big risk, they're jumping off the cliff and they don't really know what's going to happen to their business. So um, they have to do it in a different way and they have to be pretty good at doing it. So um, there is a kind of different frameworks, but uh, we adopt a different framework depending on what we're doing. But we usually go through a, a simple process, which is really about, you know, have that business model canvas mentality where you start to plan your commercialization before you go to market, or at least if you don't plan it, have a, have a view of what commercialization is because what we do see and what we do see quite frequently is a lot of zombies uh, entrepreneurs out there where they develop a product or technology for their business and wonder why they can't scale it because they never considered how to scale it in the first place. Um, they test the product, bring it to market and it doesn't work. So, We have this focus around business model canvas, which is just a framework. It's not the framework, but any framework that allows you to kind of look at the business areas that you need to do to commercialize. Then we focus on, I guess, one of the biggest areas that we see failure in in innovation is that people make assumptions. um, And we make assumptions that we think we know what we're going to build. We think we know what the audience or consumer will buy. And we start to build that place. And what we have to do is we have to get rid of our assumptions. We have to validate and test our our thoughts. And I guess the best example, um, to give you an example, I, I sit with boards and CEOs um, and C-level, and I get invited into a board, and I don't usually get much of a platform. They say, hey, you're apparently the expert. Go for it. And that's my platform. So I don't get much of a, a leading uh, niceties. they pretty Yeah, pretty hard on me sometimes because I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. And, you know, so with that kind of platform, I I probably do what I normally do. I say to the chairman, could you tell me a problem that you're working on? And then tell me your view of that problem. And the chairman does a short two or three minute viewpoint. And then I ask the same question to the CEO. I say, Mr. CEO, could you tell me your view of the problem that you just heard from the, the chairman and the and the managing director or the CEO tells me their view, and then I might ask the the marking person, the CIO, the CFO, depending on the problem I've heard, and I ask that person, um, "Can you tell me your view of the problem that the chairman just said? And within twenty seconds of that person volunteering their view, they slam the table down and they say, "How did you know?" Because they're all different,
2: right? (laughs) Well, I didn't
1: know. I say, I didn't know the problem, but I knew you'd all have a different view. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the issue we find. So we we really focus on problem validation, even writing a problem statement. And the problem statement is really important because it gives clarity to everybody. And so what happens, we see teams forming, you know, working on projects of a business, and we wonder why we build the same thing that we've always had. There's people, what they know. So we really challenge that focus. And then we, Go into this thing called an ideation process, where we or design thinking, where we challenge what the future could look like, Mm -hmm. and we look outwardly to come back into what that future should look like, and then we start to develop prototype development. And as we do this, we're always validating and we're always testing our assumptions. We put a prototype in to test it to see what the customer feedback is, because that's when you pivot, because you realize, hey, I've got this wrong. It's not. It's not what I thought or you thought you were working on a problem, but you actually worked on a symptom. And that's the other big issue that we see. A lot of businesses work on symptoms because they talk to people who tell you them about their problem they're working on, but they're symptomatic of a, a real issue. And that's where you make money when you're dealing by the real issue. You don't make money on the symptoms or you can make a little bit of money, but the real money game changer is on the real problem below the symptoms. And it's really hard to work through that. But once you do, That's when you actually take something to market and then you have to commercialize that as a minimum viable product to market, commercialize that. And because you've already thought about scalability at the beginning, you actually are developing that process in that model going forward, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I was listening to a podcast this morning about uh, launching a product and, and this lady who I thought was excellent mirrored a lot of the points you said, not in that detail. But one thing I love that Uh, Mitchell said, Cheryl was, which I don't think enough salespeople ask. And I know you're in a different role as a consultant, but I really liked your question where you asked, what is the problem? Then you said you asked them, what is their view on that problem, which I think would give a whole other uh, perspective to a salesperson. Um, And I agree Uh, to chasing symptoms versus the problem. I mean, it's classic. Uh, Anyway, great points.
1: But Rick, I think on that point, I think it's something that I know that you focus on heavily. And I think this is the thing that we've also got to change our mind shift about the way we think as professionals in business. We have to move away from sales mentality, move to consulting, because what happens in a sales process, you're very blinking on what you're trying to sell. And you're very blinking in the mindset of a salesperson that you think is right consulting is a much broader aspect and you have to understand what the business requirements are and so when you delve into the business requirements you actually can go through that process to validate and test your assumption but also the customer's assumptions and what good looks like in a sales we kind of frame the wrong way so i think as a as an industry and as, a, as professionals we have to move away from sales to a consultancy aspect and be more solution oriented from that perspective and i yeah. think that's where we kind of lose sight of it and we try to be sales and we go, yeah, I understand sales because we've all come from that. You and I both come from that background. But I think that when you gain the experience, you need to understand how to be a consultant. Hence why we don't get to those problems all the time. We kind of yeah. bypass because we're so keen to sell our product. <laughs> that makes sense.
0: Oh, I think yeah, no, I agree 100 percent Like I think the younger salespeople, if I can call them that, have are still emerging into consultants. But if you're a senior yeah. person watching right now, that question you asked, Mitchell, I thought was like phenomenal. What is the problem? And then what is your view on that problem? Because that would give you even more illustration than others. Yeah.
1: Well, it helps you validate
0: yeah, and sure. qualify your own, your own Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you just follow what their viewpoint is. If I had to ask you this question, like when you've got innovation coming and you've got a different kind of life cycle of a product, why do you think there should be so much focus on early adopters versus maybe a mature, a mature market?
1: That's a good question, Rick. Um, and the best way to explain that is that um, because I spend a lot of time with organisations who are raising capital, um, Series A investors, capital raisers from different perspectives <coughs> on different exchange um, around the world. One of the things, the things that we learn from that is that the investment community who invest money to you, they want to see that you do something and give them a return on that investment, obviously. So, through a lot of understanding, a lot of learnings, what we find is that um, business owners, entrepreneurs, or any business owner that is trying to innovate, they have to recognize where they spend their investment money or their funds once that product is in market, or as they bring into the market, I should say more correctly. What we have recognised is the most successful businesses actually uh, focus on the early adopters um, and the innovators in that space, um, to sell to because they're the ones that are more looking for a market differentiation. They're looking to outcompete the competitors. They are forward-thinking and they are much more brave in their entrepreneurship thinking. So they'll buy technology. They'll buy services or products that allow them to do that. Early innovative buyers are the best buyers. And the other thing is um, what we do find is that when businesses um, launch a product to market, if they try to go to the mass market um, quickly with a, a product or a service that is not as mature or it's new to market, what happens is they don't get the success they thought they would get is because those people who are in mass market usually wait and sit to watch what the innovated thinkers do. And once they work then they jump in. And there's usually about 16% of the market, of the whole market, that are usually the ones who have an appetite to buy quickly so they keep ahead of the competition. So they're the ones that really jump. So when you have capital, you need to focus on those 16%. And so a lot of the Series A investors and and capital investors, they ask the business owner, where are you going to spend the money? And so good business owners now focus on that 16% and don't focus on the cash cow of of the whole marketplace because they realize that's not going to be effective. And we we kind of understand that, but we actually didn't recognize what we were listening to or feeling and understanding is because you know you, you go you go to a client and you think they're a great client for your new product or service. They have all they've got all the symptoms. They they smell like it, taste like it, look like, feel like the right customer, but they never go. And you're thinking, what, what did I do wrong? And you start to doubt yourself, you start to doubt the product, you start to doubt your offering to market, and you think you've got it wrong. It's not that you've got it wrong, Is that those players in that mass market area will not generally move until the 16% have been sold to. And once that's 16%, then the mass market flows. So all we're saying is redirect your energy and focus and, and money to the 16%, get them on board, and naturally, all the other, you know, rest of the 70% will follow onwards because that's how how the markets work. And it's been successful for a lot of businesses raising capital to focus on that first 16%. And they buy that kind of 16% market and they focus their uh, attention to that, if that makes sense. So hopefully that answered that question yeah. for you, Rick. And
2: yeah. they manage the expectations of the investors, right? Because Correct. That's that's the most important thing is keeping them happy, probably, especially at the beginning stages.
1: Yeah, look the, the investors are pretty strict. you know, the investors are shrewd because it's their money. So they want to know where that yeah, success exactly. is going to look like. So they they're pretty good at because, you know, from a business owner perspective, and a lot of business owners probably don't always see this, is that those investors. Do a lot of shopping around, they get to compare a lot of players that are doing things in different markets. And they're going to be very finite where they give that money. So they want to have the answers before they give the money to someone. Mm-hmm. So they want some maturity And there's never assurance, but they'll bet an insurance. Now, there are people who are probably not as sophisticated investors, and you know, fam- fam- family friends and you know, relatives yeah. kind of thing. They yeah. they might they may support it, but usually the general investors community kind of are pretty practical where they spend their money.
2: Right. Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great insight. We could talk about this for, for hours and hours, I'm sure. And people pay you to do just that. Um, if you're interested in getting more information about Mitchell, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. Really appreciate your time today.
0: Or you well can catch thank him you on me. a big wave in Australia somewhere. <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: yep, out the back.
0: Thanks for joining us, buddy. Great job. And I for- uh, really enjoyed your insights today. Have appreciate you. it.
1: Thank you. Have a great time. Thank,
2: thank you. you. See you next week, everybody.